Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to 10% Happier early and ad-free right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. From ABC, this is the 10% Happier Podcast. I'm Dan Harris. This time on the show, we're talking about a subject uh, with which I am obsessed. It's it's uh, deeply nerdy, so prepare yourself. Um, it's a uh, actually a controversial meditation topic. Uh, it's a kind of meditation known as jhana meditation. Uh, if you haven't heard that word before, it's an ancient Indian word, J-H-A-N-A, jhana meditation. It involves um, getting deeply concentrated in meditation and then allegedly accessing um, these altered states of consciousness that are associated with uh, profound uh, amounts of bliss and happiness and ecstasy, uh, which, as given my personal predilections, uh, as you might imagine, incredibly interesting to me. Uh, However, as I said, controversial for a number of reasons. One, uh, in the Buddhist world, there are debates about whether uh, the jhanas are uh, a waste of time, uh, a diversion, uh, potentially an addictive diversion that doesn't help you reach enlightenment. Um, uh, uh, you have to buy into enlightenment in order to to, um, um, to, to take that debate seriously. Uh, the second uh, controversy is... Uh, can regular people access uh, the jhanas? Can, do you have to be on retreat for months at a time, basically um, become a monastic, or can regular schmoes like uh, you and me uh, uh, access the jhanas? And the third debate uh, is not really a debate in the Buddhist world, but I'm going to throw it in there, which is, um, are these things even real? I mean, I, I said allegedly earlier because I don't know if, if the jhanas are real. Maybe people are deluding themselves into having these experiences for thousands of years. I don't know. Anyway, my guest today knows exponentially more about this than I do and can correct any errors or omissions in the foregoing. Uh, his name is Lee Brasington. He is one of the most prominent uh, American teachers of jhana meditation. Lee, thanks for coming on. Oh, my pleasure. Happy to be here. You wrote a great book that I just finished reading called Right Concentration, which explains I'd heard of the jhanas for years. I didn't actually know what they were until I read your book. Um Incredibly clear and compelling. Uh, so let's just start by defi- what are the jhanas and what did I get wrong in what I've just said? Actually, you did very good with what you Thank just you. said. Thank you. I'm right. going to mess everything up going forward, just so you know. Okay. So the jhanas are eight altered states of consciousness that are brought on by concentration and each yields even more concentration. This allows you to stair-step your way down to deeper and deeper levels of concentration. The jhanas are a warm-up exercise for what's usually called insight practice, an investigation of reality. Uh, if you... Can I, let me just stop you right there. To, uh, and I, I will interrupt you at times just because I'm always mindful, to use a loaded term, of the fact <laughs> that some in our audience will not be familiar with some of the terms <laughs> we're going to use here. So... Insight practices are generally, in, in, in Buddhist speak, and this is all sort of a Buddhist subject, are what lead you to enlightenment, to yes. seeing what the nature of reality actually is, which exactly. is that it's impermanent and uh, um, and uh, several other things that we can get into as well. <laughs> I don't want to get too geeky quite yet. But anyway, the, 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 the sort of binary, it, sometimes people set this up as a false binary, is that if you're doing jhana practice, you're getting caught up in these states of bliss, and you're not doing insight practice, which allows you to see exactly what our world is and is not made up of. Right. And if you're driving on the road to the Grand Canyon, you're not seeing the Grand Canyon. And so it's pointless to drive on the road to the Grand Canyon. (laughs) (laughs) That's your pushback. Yeah. uh, They're a warm-up exercise. Normally, when we look at the world, we tend to look at it from a very egocentric perspective. Basically, can I eat that or will that eat me? Well, maybe we get a little more sophisticated than that. But it's all about me. Is this something I want to get? Is this something I need to get rid of? I is the most important part of that. If you get sufficiently concentrated, then you're in a less egocentric place and you have a less egocentric perspective. It turns out that I is not the center of the universe. And so if you're looking from a less egocentric perspective, you have a much better chance of seeing what's actually happening. So this is the purpose behind generating these states of concentration. So how do you, can can I 
uh, access the jhanas? I mean, I'm, I have a full-time job, a baby, and um, uh, very limited amounts of concentration. Is this possible for regular people? Yes. In fact, I've taught the jhanas to regular people in over 100 residential retreats. But there's the key word, residential retreats. In order to learn them, you're probably going to need to leave behind for uh, 10 days as a minimum the baby and the job and the family and everything else and just go off and meditate. But that's fine. I do I do a 10-day retreat every year. So, Good. So, that, so it is possible. It is possible. In theory for me. Yes. Now, I never know for a student who comes on my retreat uh, whether they're going to experience jhanas or not. There is a high enough percentage who do that makes it worthwhile to teach. Uh, but, you know, when I first started, I would go through the interview questionnaires to look to see, all right, who's going who's gonna to do really well? I could have taken the papers and thrown them up in the air, and the ones that came up right side up meant one and down upside down meant the other and been just as accurate. No way to tell in advance. Uh, it pays your money and you takes your chances, basically. <laughs> uh, so... All right, I want, I want to get let's let's go let's get seriously uh, detailed on this because you do a great job of getting into uh, uh, great detail in your book without ever ever being boring. Oh, good. Um, so you you sit down on the cushion. What do you do? All right. So the first thing you need to do is generate a basic level of concentration. Uh, in the later literature, it's called access concentration. It's called access concentration because it's sufficient concentration to give you access to the jhanas. Now, we should actually, the word concentration is a translation of the Pali word samadhi. And Pali is an ancient Indian language spoken in the time of the Buddha. Exactly. But samadhi probably could be better translated as indistractability, if that's even a real word. What you want to do is generate the ability to not become distracted, all right? So you sit down and you do an access method, uh, most commonly following the breathing, but there are a number of other methods that you can use. You can use a systematic scan of the surface of your body, sweeping is often called. Uh, you can do loving kindness, metta meditation. You can use a mantra let me just stop you for a second. Just, I'm going to do this occasionally, but loving kindness meditation, just for the uninitiated, that is where you uh, systematically visualize people and send them good vibes. And right. it can get you into a state of real concentration and joy. Yes, exactly. And you also mentioned, uh, what was the fourth uh, technique that you mentioned? The mantra. Mantra meditation, where you silently repeat a word. Right, uh, or term, a phrase. Or a phrase. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, there are actually, according to the later commentaries, 30 different methods of generating access concentration. So lots of ways to get yourself this basic level of indistractability. Once you've gotten that generated, and on a 10-day retreat, it might take you four or five days to be consistently generating that, because normally you go on retreat, and first thing you do is you think about your job, and then you argue with your boss, and then you plan your vacation, and right. So when all that settles down, you have a chance of getting to access concentration. Once you're there, hang out for a while, and then there's a trick. And the trick is, instead of, for example, continuing to follow your breathing, you shift your attention to some pleasant sensation. The pleasant sensation might be your smile. You might notice Buddha statues often have a smile on the face. That's uh, not just for artistic purposes. That's actually for teaching. If you smile when you meditate, by the time you get to access concentration, the fake smile you put on when you start it will become genuine and you'll have a pleasant sensation you can focus on. Other possible places for finding a pleasant sensation are the hands, the heart center, particularly if you're doing loving kindness meditation, uh, top of the head, third eye, you name third a body. Third eye? Third eye, the spot sort of on your forehead between your eyes. Uh, sometimes people find pleasure there. Often when people get concentrated, there's a sort of tingling sense there, and some people find that pleasurable. You have to believe that there is such a thing as a third eye. Okay, it's not, it's not a visual eye. I know. It's, it's an area in between, well, in the area between 
your just above your eyebrows and then above your nose mm-hmm. in the center. And if you get sufficiently concentrated, you will possibly notice a sort of faint tingling sensation there that you're not noticing in the rest of your forehead. So you've spent a few days getting quiet. Quiet. You uh, then have a, what you uh, or your teacher uh, deem to be a sufficient level of indistractability. Mm-hmm. And then the trick is you shift your focus from whatever had been your primary object of meditation to some pleasant feeling, whether exactly. it's on your third eye or your hand or uh, uh, wherever, yeah. or your smile, and then what? And then you do nothing else except stay focused on the pleasant sensation, which is actually quite difficult. Um, I mean, if you're following your breathing, you know, a lot of excitement there. I mean, the breath is coming in, the breath is going out. I'm being a bit facetious here, (laughs) right? If you're focused on the slight pleasure generated by your smile or the warm glow in your hands, it's, it's pretty subtle and not much is happening. So you need to be very indistractable to stay with your attention on such a subtle object. If you can do that, eventually, not right away, but eventually it will actually increase in intensity, just slightly. And if you can just continue to focus on it, it very slowly will continue to increase in intensity until it suddenly propels you into an obviously altered state of consciousness full of glee and joy. And this is the first jhana. And this is the first jhana. Uh, Glee and joy. I mean, how how intense? I mean, I have, uh, um, I mean, I've been public about this, a a pretty pronounced history of um, uh, problems with addiction. Um, Mm -hmm. So I'm strongly attracted to glee and joy. So how intense is this? Uh, Sometimes you want to see afterwards, did you actually blast a hole through the roof? Because it can be that intense. It can be somewhat mild and sustaining. Uh, I never know how intense somebody's going to get it. If it comes on really intense the first time, it probably won't ever be that intense afterwards, but it might still be quite intense. Uh, Some people find that it's mild. They can sustain it for five to 10 minutes. No problem. Other people have had enough after 30 seconds. If it's really intense, 10 seconds might be enough. That's the glee part. Glee is a translation of the Pali word PT, which we don't really have a good English translation okay. for. P-I-T-I. Right. And that is, again, a, an ancient Pali word, and, and it, it's glee, joy, bliss. Glee, rapture, euphoria, ecstasy. It's, a, it's an energetic release with a primarily physical component, and it's accompanied by sukha, sucrose, Right? <laughs> Sweet. And then that's, that's spelled S U K K H A, Sukha, right? Am I, am I close on that? 1K. 1K, S U K H A. Right. And that's more of an emotional sense of joy or happiness. Gotcha. Okay. So two different things happen in the first jhana, which is. Right. But they happen so intermixed that in the first jhana, you may not be able to distinguish what's PT, what's Sukha, what's glee, what's joy. Okay. But that doesn't matter. They, they'll both be there. So you're getting this just huge dose. Well, depends on the person, but you you may be getting a huge dose of physical rapture and glee accompanied with an emotional joy. Right. Happiness. Happiness. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. That's the first jhana, if you can sustain it and sustain your attention on it. Why would you not be able to sustain your attention on something that awesome? Because it's so awesome, you go, wow, and it goes away. Oh. Okay. Right. Or it feels like you're going out of control. This is because you are going out of control. And if you are a control freak and you find yourself going out of control, you might just freak out and back off of it. So do people get up and walk away from the cushion in in these moments sometimes? No, but they might open their eyes and take a really deep breath or something to make it go away. And are you screwed at that point? Can you get back or, or what's the deal? You're probably screwed for that 45-minute to hour meditation session. But, yeah, you, you, because you're on a retreat, you got another one coming up in another 45 minutes yes. or so. Yeah, for better or worse, yes. Right, yeah. So, okay, so that's the first, John. What, what's the move at that point? Okay, so you want to stay in this state for some period of time 
inversely proportional to the intensity. Okay, if it's really strong, yeah, 10, 30 seconds. If it's mild, 5, 10 minutes. The next move is to the second jhana. And to get there, what you want to do is take a nice, deep breath and really let the energy out with the exhale. This will calm the PT, the glee, the physical component. And you shift your attention to the emotional component, the joy, the happiness. Uh, when you take that breath, it'll sort of decouple the physical PT glee part from the emotional joy happiness part. And now your focus of attention becomes joy happiness. And now you're just focused on being happy for no reason other than the fact you have a very concentrated mind. And this second jhana, I would imagine one can hang out there in a long for longer than one could hang out in the first jhana given the yes. intensity. Right. Yeah. Even a very intense second jhana is not problematic. Now, of course, all of this stuff is neurotransmitters, just like everything else that we experience. You might run out of neurotransmitters associated with the sukha, the joy, happiness, and then, yeah, fall out of it, or perhaps just on your own move on towards the third jhana. Okay, well, okay. <laughs> what's the third jhana? Okay, and how do we get there? The third jhana, the physical component, which is in the background of the second jhana, is gone completely. And the joy happiness is tuned down to more a sense of contentment, wishlessness, satisfaction. Satisfaction so complete that if Mick Jagger had been practicing the third jhana, <laughs> he wouldn't be able to sing that song. Okay? So the move is simply to take another deep breath, exhale, let things calm down more, and in the process turn the volume control on the joy, happiness, down to contentment, wishlessness. And now you're focused on just being contented. At that point, it's a very still experience. And in the first jhana, with all the physical, you might be physically shaking. Somebody could even see. In the second, the physical is in the background, maybe some rocking or swaying or something. In the third, all the physical is quieted completely, and you're just hanging out, focused on this pleasant sense of contentment, and it's very still. And then the fourth. The fourth is to let go of the pleasure of the contentment and let your mind drop down to a state of quiet stillness. It's described as a state beyond pleasure and pain, so very equanimous, very emotionally neutral. Again, it might be helpful to take a deep breath, uh, but the key thing is to get in touch with the pleasantness of the contented feeling and just let that go. For myself, in the third jhana, I've got a wispy Buddha smile. First jhana, big grin, you can see my teeth. Second jhana, big smile, no teeth. Third jhana, the wispy Buddha smile. All right, then I just get in touch with the pleasantness of that smile and just relax it out to neutral. When I do that, there's a sense of things dropping, physically dropping down. I just go with the dropping down until it settles into a place of quiet stillness. And that's the fourth jhana. And that's the fourth jhana. Right, we've got a couple more jhanas to get through, but <laughs> but I just how, let me go back to the question I asked at, at the outset of the podcast, which is how I mean people have been doing the jhanas for thousands of years. I mean, yes. the Buddha was doing the jhana bef the jhanas before he got enlightened, right? So right. this was this is an ancient Hindu technique, if I understand it, right? Well, well we could say proto Hindu technique. Okay. It was in the spiritual traditions at the time of the Buddha, which is actually before Hinduism evolved. Okay, so it's been around for a long time. A long time. We don't. We have no idea how long. But how do we know that? How do you know that you're not? You didn't read the literature about the jhanas and then you know convince yourself you're having these experiences. How, how do we know this is actually real? For a number of times, I've actually meditated for science. Okay, they've put an EEG bonnet on me and I've run through the jhanas. And they've shoved me in an fMRI and basically taken movies of my brains while I run through the jhanas. And, yeah, it's not high-quality jhanas in those circumstances because it's, uh, shall we say, a less than optimal situation for meditation. But we have data that we can actually look at and see what's going on when I claim to be in jhana 2, all right, what's going on in my brain. 
One of the things that we know is that the left prefrontal cortex, which is associated with positive emotional states, shows a good bit more activity than the right prefrontal cortex, which is associated with negative emotional states. If you're sitting there focused on happiness, this is what you would expect. The other very interesting thing is that the nucleus accumbens, which is in sort of the center of your brain, the reward center is, as one of the neuroscientists put it, the neuroscientists put it, is on overdrive. So I'm feeling very rewarded when I'm in the second jhana. So there are certainly neurophysiological changes taking place. Uh, I work with Dr. Judd Brewer uh, at Yale and now at UMass uh, Mindfulness, and he has basically setups where he can detect how much selfing is going on in the brain. There are parts of the brain that light up when you think about, I did this or I want to do that, where the ego is there. Yeah, he calls it our default mode. Right. And the default mode network is shut down. The selfing parts of the brain are really quiet. And there are other parts of the brain associated with attention that are lit up. So whether I'm doing exactly what the Buddha is doing, we don't know. But I'm doing something that has significant, noticeable neurological effects. You're not making it up, in other words. Not making it up. So, so, and I should say, uh, you talked about Dr. Judd Brewer, who formerly of Yale, now of the uh, uh, Center for Mindfulness at the University of Massachusetts, the director of research there. He's a mutual friend of ours. And it's actually listening to Judd talk about the jhanas and how important they were to his practice, as well as he, listening to my friend uh, Jay Michelson, who was on this podcast a few weeks ago, who is, if you haven't listened to that, he is a journalist, a, a theologian, and a lawyer. Um, uh, he talks about the importance of jhanas in his practice. Having these two smart guys whispering in my ear has, <laughs> is what has pro partially produced my obsession with this subject. Mm -hmm. um, so, again, you feel quite confident that that the, the that you're not deluding yourself into these uh, altered states. Let's put it this way. After practicing for six years, I went on retreat with my teacher, the late Venerable Ayakema, for five and a half weeks. And I was just finishing learning the jhanas at that point. And then she started making me do insight practice in the same sittings. And it was life-transforming. When I came back from that five and a half weeks, my friends could see I was different, and I've been different ever since. The amount and depth of the insights I got with a jonically concentrated mind were, yeah, mind-blowing. So, and I've seen this happen with other students. I mean, you know, I teach them the jhanas, then I force them to do their insight practice, and they come in with insights that are actually life-changing. I've done a terrible job of structuring this interview because I was so I was so uh, I just so da badly wanted to get you to describe what the the jhanas are that I then I didn't ask you anything about who you are or your background, <laughs> uh, um, and so now you've raised a bunch of questions that I feel like I need to pursue, while bearing in mind that we're only halfway through the jhanas. So can we do this? Uh, can we walk and chew gum? You think? Uh, yeah, oh, sure. Okay, so bear with me. We'll get back to the 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 this stepwise progression down into the uh, 5th, 6th, 7th, and 8th jhanas. But let me just take a break and ask you. So you are a former software engineer. Right. Uh, in the Bay Area, right? The San Francisco Bay Area. Okay. So how did you get into, you got into meditation in 1985? Right. How and why? I had screwed up my knee going running and was seeing a massage therapist. And she was a student of meditation. And she said, eventually, there's going to be this meditation retreat. You should go. Well, since I was unemployed and had nothing else to do, off I went. I had been sort of interested in meditation. Uh, I had seen some friends over Christmas who were into meditation and so forth, and they were saying, you got to do this, you got to do this. So off I went. And the retreat was a 10-day retreat down in the desert in Southern California with a German-Jewish Theravadan nun named Aya Kema. Very interesting person who was known for teaching the jhanas, although she didn't speak about the jhanas very much at that time. Uh, and I knew nothing about the jhanas. I just was trying to learn meditation. And she was an incredibly good first meditation teacher. She gave me enough background so that when the retreat was over, I kept doing it. Did you enter the jhanas on that first retreat? No. <laughs> the first time I entered the jhanas was three years later on a retreat with Ajahn Buddha Dasa in southern Thailand. And I stumbled into the first jhana. 
there. Oh, so you weren't trying to get into the jhanas when you first entered? I, I didn't know what a jhana was. Oh, okay, okay. I, I was just trying to learn meditation. I was trying to follow more than one breath in a row. And how did you stumble into the jhanas then? And why hasn't that happened to me? Okay. So it's four days into this retreat with Ajahn Buddhadasa, and it's very much focused on mindfulness of breathing. And I'm sitting on a little cushion, and my lower back is really starting to bother me quite badly. And it's about 40 minutes into a 45-minute sitting. And I slide forward on the cushion, and when I do, I slip off the edge such that my sits bones are now on the little thin mat on the concrete floor, and my tailbone is still on the cushion. This has the effect of putting my hips in exactly the right posture so I don't have to use my muscles to hold my back upright. And that produces this huge burst of pleasure, which is PT, and it's accompanied by sukha. So it was a simple adjustment of posture, and I stumbled in. Four days into a retreat, I was quite concentrated. 40 minutes into a 45-minute seating, I was quite concentrated. I shift. It becomes more pleasant, which I notice, and boom, first jhana arises. And you had no idea what it was. Oh, I had no idea. I had a slight hint. There was a Dutch woman on that retreat who had asked, what do I do with all this joy that arises when I meditate? And my first thought was, oh, this must be what that Dutch woman was talking about. And my second thought was, I'm going to sit like this every time I meditate, <laughs> which I did until my knee gave out and I could no longer sit on the floor. I assume many people listening are having the same reaction that I'm having, which is, I, where's my joy? This doesn't happen when I meditate. I'm Mostly it's physical pain and planning uh, you know, in my lunch or whether I need a haircut. Right. Well, you don't need a haircut. Oh, thank you. Okay. Uh, the key is to sit in a comfortable, upright posture, not one where you're fighting it all the time. Uh, you can sit so it looks really good, or you can sit so it works really good. It's great if both of those are the same posture. But for many people who have spent their lives sitting in these evil devices called chairs, they've screwed up their ability to sit cross-legged on the floor. So you might have to adjust your sitting some ways so that you're not in such pain. Maybe you use a lot of pillows or maybe you even resort to a chair. And then, like I said, concentrate for a long time on not being distracted and then find some pleasure. That shift to finding the pleasure is the trick. You probably haven't gone looking for pleasure when you were meditating. Well, actually, let me tell you this further um, uh, takes us away from the progress of the jhanas, but that's okay. Who cares? Uh, it's my show. Um, I was on a retreat in uh, November, I think, and up at the Inside Meditation Society uh, with Joseph Goldstein, and um, I was uh, becoming incredibly neurotic about uh, my, my how what a horrible meditator I am, and I was reporting this to Joseph in one of our meetings, and. Uh, and uh, Joseph basically uh, prescribed me the uh, Buddhist um, equivalent of Valium. He said, you know, slow down. Here's what I think you should do. You know, uh, maybe uh, take a very comfortable seat, he recommended, right on the bridge of your nose. Mm -hmm. um, and just follow your breath as it comes in, but don't follow it up the nose. Just feel it as it yeah, right there and then right as it comes back out. You don't have to follow it up. This should just be really easy. Just try to feel the sensations of the breath coming in and going out right at the base of your nose. Mm -hmm. uh, so I did that. I actually took him literally, and this calls back to something you just talked about. I actually took a more comfortable seat than I usually do. I went and sat on these fluffy chairs that they have on the second floor in one, of the, in one of the residence halls instead of sitting in the sometimes sort of hothouse atmosphere of the actual meditation hall. Mm -hmm. And um, uh, it was like somebody, I did it, I think he meant for me to just do it for a few minutes at the beginning of each sit, but I actually did it for a day and a half. Mm -hmm. but that's all I did. Right. And um, uh, it was like somebody injected uh, a vial of benzodiazepine into my soul. I mm -hmm. mean, I just felt, I mean, I was laughing and making up stupid lists of nicknames for my cats and what I was just, <laughs> uh, well, mostly this wasn't happening externally. I don't think anybody would have noticed, but I was in a great mood and much less neurotic about um, my meditation practice. And I was in touch with a lot of physical feelings that in fact, 
that in fact called back in some ways to uh, experiences I had when I used to abuse drugs. I mean, mm-hmm. it was actually not a dissimilar feeling. Um, so am I in the neighborhood of John, or is that just what happens when you get slightly more concentrated? Yes, both. Yeah, this is what happens. This is where the mind likes to go. I'm just a hippie computer programmer, and yet I can teach people to get into the jhanas. It's because human minds like to go that way if they get quiet. It's nothing special about me. It's something special about our minds. You get quiet enough, and you stop covering up the natural state of the mind, which is actually kind of blissful, and that's what happened to you. And if you can focus on that pleasure, you will go into the first jhana, most likely. Now, no guarantees. You have to come on a retreat and try it and see. But yeah, I'm, I'm going to come on a retreat. You know, yeah, you're not. You're, you now have a problem. I'm going to follow you around. Excellent. Good. Yeah. The we're not trying to do something unnatural. We're trying to stop doing something unnatural. We're trying to let the obvious, you know, clear, blissful state of mind that we have shine forth. Normally, we're busy covering it up with nicknames for the cats and what the boss said that was really stupid and everything else. Yeah. I found naming the, the cats actually to be intensely pleasurable. It was, it, was, it, was, it was not deliberate thinking. It was just what was sort of right. coming up naturally. It's different for me than rehearsing an argument with my boss. Yes, Exactly. And that sort of stuff is not going to be so counterproductive. Uh, if you get too wrapped up in the cats, though, yeah. Yeah, you're worrying about their you know, kidney function or whatever. Right. That's, that's different. Audible lets you enjoy all your audio entertainment in one app. You'll always find the best of what you love or something new to discover. They offer an incredible selection of audiobooks across every genre from bestsellers and new releases to celebrity memoirs, mysteries and thrillers, motivation, wellness, business and more. Audible is the destination for thrilling audio entertainment with highly anticipated new releases and next listen recommendations for every type of thriller listener. The selection over on Audible when it comes to true crime, mystery and thriller. Thriller is um, quite extensive. They've got John Grisham, tons of stuff by Stephen King, David Baldacci. My favorite that I've checked out recently in the crime fiction genre is called Age of Vice. It's by Deepthi Kapoor. It came out uh, not long ago. Not only is it thrilling and uh, very, very plotty, but it's also written incredibly well. It's truly literature. Deepthi Kapoor is a, a force of nature as a writer. Age of Vice, it takes you into the... Uh, Underworld in New Delhi in India. I absolutely love that one. As an Audible member, you can choose one title a month to keep from the entire catalog, including the latest bestsellers and new releases. New members can try Audible free for 30 days. Visit audible.com slash 10% or text 10% to 500-500. That's audible.com slash 10% or text 10% to 500-500 to try Audible free for 30 days. Audible.com slash 10%. The Taste the Mediterranean sales event is going on now through March 19th at Whole Foods Market. It's a store-wide event packed with flavor. My family and I are regulars at Whole Foods Market. We've got one, I think, less than a mile and a half away from our house. This Taste the Mediterranean thing sounds pretty cool. Uh, They've got Mediterranean-inspired flavors. You can save on Parmigiano-Reggiano, charcuterie, and ground lamb. They've got delectable seafood choices. You can save on whole branzini and sustainable wild-caught sockeye salmon, which is a regular feature at our dinners in this house. My son loves that salmon from Whole Foods. And I'd be remiss if I didn't point out all of the uh, 365 by Whole Foods Market products. Stock up on wallet-happy Mediterranean essentials like feta cheese crumbles, whole wheat pita pockets, and more. I am constantly uh, consuming these 365 products, including the, the raw cashews, which I snack on all the time. We love the 365 sea salt and pepper. Uh, we love their sushi rice. You get the picture. Go check it out. Taste the Mediterranean now at Whole Foods Market. So one of the things you say in the book, though, is, and you just talked about we're not trying to dot, dot, dot. If you try too hard... In, in some ways, actually, that is counterproductive. Yeah. You actually, I think you describe it as you have to let the jhana come find you. Right. 
That's what, remember back when I was describing the first, John, I, you said, what do you do after you focus on the pleasure? I said, do nothing else. Let the jhana come find you. But that is hard to do for us type A striver folks. I mean, I'm not a, I mean, you describe yourself as a hippie uh, computer programmer. but a Type be, A. Okay, so you're type A too. So that it's a little counterintuitive. Oh, yeah, yeah. This is not easy. If it were easy, everybody would be doing this. Right. So, yeah, it takes some hard work. And so that's why you've got to go on a retreat and you've got to spend time working on your concentration. But I found, I found speaking of – since that retreat I was on with Joseph, you know, I, I, I meditate a, a couple hours a day now, which is, is a um, pain in the butt. But uh, I, I do it. Um, and I find that when I have a good long time – so if, I can, if I've got an hour, maybe an hour and 15 minutes to meditate um, – mm-hmm. uh, if I start with a couple body scans and then just do this, you know, taking a comfortable seat at the at the bridge of my nose, um, uh, then is that the, the what's the right term for this? Uh, yeah, bridge? I'm not sure what the, the opening, right, right, right where the sort of top of the lip area meets the bottom of the nose. If right. I do, if I do that, I actually I'm not in the jhana as far as I know, but I'm. I'm experiencing warm washes of physical pleasure. For yeah, sure. you're beginning to get some PT. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So I'm on I'm on the roads of the Grand Canyon. Right. Uh, yeah, yeah. Maybe a different Grand Canyon in this case. Yeah, you're north of Flagstaff. So can, can you pop into the jhana at, a jhana at any time? I need to be able to generate access concentration. All right? So if I sit down to meditate and I realize I didn't buy the ticket I needed to buy and, oh, I forgot to pay that bill and, no, I can't get there. But if I can sit down and get to access concentration, yeah. So it's a matter of can I generate access concentration? Are there few enough distractions in my life that I can set everything aside? Then, yeah, I can go in right away. So like you're, you have a train later today right. after, after this interview. You're going to catch your – if you're sitting there in the train and it's reasonably quiet in the train, can you get into the, into the jhanas? Uh, probably could, yeah. But I, I like to look out the window. Given how pleasant the jhanas are, why don't you want to spend all of your life there? Um, there's more to life than just altered states of consciousness. One of the things you mentioned early on was people get addicted to the jhanas, or so it is said. Well, it turns out... Well, there's a term, jhana junkie. Yeah, right. It turns out that uh, it's not a problem for Westerners. We have our famous short attention span. Right. And so, yeah, you get high when you meditate. It's fantastic. And you get high when you meditate. and It's fantastic. And then it's like I've been there, done that. What's next? Well, what's next is insight practice. So I'm actually far more interested in investigating reality than hanging out in blissful states. And one of the things that neuroscientists found is that whatever state of mind you have a tendency to hang out in becomes your default. So I have a pretty pleasant, you know, sort of natural place to hang out. So I'm sitting there on the train looking out the window, and it's, yeah, it's just nice looking out the window. No, I mean, I just met you. You seem like a, a pretty relaxed dude. I will give you credit for that. But are you – so what is, what is technically the difference between uh, – jhana practice and insight practices. Can you just describe that for for listeners who might not know the difference? Right. So jhana practice, basically you're trying to generate this indistractability to deeper and deeper levels by shifting your focus to different and increasingly more subtle objects. The rapture, glee, and joy are not particularly subtle. Once you get to contentment, it's subtle. Quiet stillness, that's pretty subtle. The higher genres are even more subtle. And so as you're successfully sustaining your attention on each of these more and more subtle objects, you're increasing your level of concentration, your ability to not become distracted. But that's all that's happening. The insight practice is an investigation of what's actually happening. Looking at reality and seeing it in terms of its impermanent nature, the fact that nothing is going to give you lasting happiness, and the fact that everything depends on other things. Nothing stands alone. And what I guess what I was trying to get is technically what would be different. So if I'm trying to get to the jhanas, I'm paying attention to my breath, but in most insight practices, I'm also just paying attention to my breath. So what's the real difference? Okay, with the jhanas, you want to only pay attention to your breath. You don't want anything else to happen. In other words, if you start planning, you don't make a note of the planning. You just go back to the breath. Right. 
Whereas in insight practices, you might, if you get carried away, you might actually turn your attention to what is carrying you away. Right. <clears throat> you might find it useful to drop a label on whatever carried away planning. You will definitely find it useful to relax. Anytime you get distracted, there's probably been some tension that's been generated. So once you notice a distraction, relax and bring your attention back. But you're not investigating what's going on any further than perhaps putting a label on what the distraction was. Whereas if you're doing an insight practice, you're more oriented towards investigating reality in some way or another. Should we get back to uh, sure. the progression of the jhana? So we, when we left off, we were in jhana number four. Which is actually a very good place to have made this shift because according to the discourses of the Buddha, jhana four seems to be sufficient. The other jhanas appear to be optional. If you can do it, great. If not, once you're at four, yeah, it's fine. You've got enough indistractability that your insight practice is going to be well enhanced. Okay. Um, so I'm glad I brilliantly made the switch then. Yeah. So what, what does one do to get from four, which is a pretty subtle place, to five, and whatever that is? Right. So the fifth jhana has the name... The realm of infinite space. It starts to sound like Dungeons and Dragons. Yeah. Uh, it's pretty far out there. The l names are simply labels for an experience that you're having that appears to be that you are experiencing infinite space. Right? I'm rather doubtful you're experiencing infinite space. You've just put your mind into a state so that what you perceive is a vast, empty space. The way to get there is, <clears throat> well, now it's going to sound kind of weird. All right. Yeah, well, we're, we're pretty deep into kind of weird territory, <laughs> so go for it. Oh, no, no, we're not deep yet. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So you're in a place of quiet stillness for the fourth jhana. All right. You may find that you've slumped over because it's such an energetically down state that you physically have slumped over. All right. So get your energy back up and then find something that you can imagine expanding without limit. What my teacher told me was get in touch with the boundaries of my being and expand them to fill the room, the building, the retreat center, the town, and just keep expanding till I hit the horizon and then just keep going. Just stay focused on outward expansion. Stay at the edges of the expansion. If you can do this, eventually a vast empty space appears before you. <laughs> when she told you me actually see it. You actually see it if you're a visual person. If you're auditory or kinesthetic, you may know it in some other way. Since I'm very visual, I see it. Now, when my teacher gave me those instructions, my immediate reaction was, oh, no, she's gone new agey on me. But no, she hadn't. I went back. Because Ayakema was not someone that you would want to go in and say, oh, well, your instructions just didn't seem real. I didn't do it. It was like, okay, I'm going to do this to the best of my ability. So when I go back and tell her it didn't work, because I just don't believe it. And so I sat down and got up to the fourth jhana. And then I started that expansion. And expanded for maybe, I don't know, five minutes, and boom, this huge space appeared. It was like I had arrived at the Grand Canyon, only there was no bottom and there was no other side. It was bigger than the Grand Canyon. And it, yeah, it blew me away. It, it happened to be on my birthday. Mm. And I remember going up to Aya afterwards and told her I'd gotten to the fifth jhana. And it was one of the coolest birthday presents I'd ever had in my life. And yeah, so this vast empty space appears. What's really interesting is sometimes I run into people that used to do this as a kid. They'd lay in their bed at night and then they would imagine the ceiling opening up and then they would just drift out into the stars bigger and bigger and suddenly it became very, very real. And now when I give them the instructions, they wind up, oh yeah, same place I was as a kid. Hmm. Yeah. What comes after that? Okay, so you hang out, focused on this infinite space for 10, 15 minutes. And then you shift your attention from the space to your consciousness of the space. Become conscious of your consciousness. Become aware of your awareness. It's a sort of shifting from out there, turning back. If you do that, 
it feels like you become absorbed into the space and your mind now becomes as big as the space. What's the name of this, John? The realm of infinite consciousness, mm-hmm. right? So um, it's uh, you, the trick is to realize you couldn't be conscious of an infinite space with a limited consciousness. Your consciousness must be as big as the space. Become conscious of how big your consciousness is. And bingo, suddenly your mind feels absolutely huge. You were right. This is pretty weird. Okay, so uh, that's the sixth jhana. Um, And what's number seven? The realm of nothingness or no-thingness. So after you've been in infinite consciousness for 5, 10, 15 minutes, what is the content of that consciousness? Well, it turns out there is not really any content. The sense of space is long gone, and there's nothing. And so you put your attention on this sense of nothing. And yeah, the nothing sort of stabilizes and gets a bit bigger. And now you're focused on no thing. It's sort of like you go down into the basement and you hit the light switch and it doesn't work. And you're trying to see what's down there. And you can see there's nothing right in front of you. And as your eyes get a little more adjusted, there's nothing back there and there's nothing down here. Well, there's nothing down here at all. So now you're focused on nothing, no thing. Okay, right. well, that's number seven. And then how do you get to eight? How are you getting between these? Well, for to five, it's just the, this, altering the expansion. The, right, right, right. And then six, altering from the space to your awareness of the space. Of the space. Yes. From to get to seven, from the consciousness to the content of the consciousness, mm-hmm. and to eight. The name of the eighth one is the realm of neither perception or non-perception. Perception is the Pali word, or the English word we use to translate the Pali word that refers to our ability to name or conceptualize things, sanya. So it's a place that you, it's a place that has no characteristics by which you can describe it. But when you're there, you know your mind is in a state that has no characteristics by which you can describe it. Is this like uh, that Supreme Court Justice Louis Brandeis when he when asked what is pornography? He says, I I can't define it, but I know it when I see it. That's about the best description you could possibly get of the eighth jhana. You know it when you see it. It's actually fairly easy to find if you have a really good seventh jhana. By then, you got a big nothing, right? Mm-hmm. Let the nothing collapse and come to rest in front of your face and see if your mind goes into a state where you can't describe where you are. It has no characteristics, but you can stay in this state that has no characteristics. Why? Okay, what do you do when you get to the eighth jhana, and why is there no ninth jhana? Maybe there is, and we haven't found it yet. Um, what you do is you stay there for a while, and then you come out and start doing your inside practice. Gotcha. All right. Is there a ninth jhana? There is a state called the cessation of feeling and perception, uh, referred to as nirodha, which just means cessation. That is a state of suspended animation. Okay? That is sometimes referred to as the ninth jhana. It's talked about in the discourses of the Buddha, but it's never called the ninth jhana. There are lots of other altered states of consciousness that people find. When I go to teach a retreat, almost invariably I'm going to get a new student come into their first interview and say, can I tell you about something that happened to me? And they'll describe one of the jhanas, that's the most common, an out-of-body experience, which are more common than they thought they were, or something I never heard of. It's clearly a concentrated altered state but is not one of the jhanas and is not an out-of-body experience. It's like off the map kind of. And no two people describing a non-jhana, non-altered state of conscious, uh, out-of-body experience describe the same stuff. All right? They're all finding these other states. And I've even found one on my own. Uh, I I refer to it as jhana seven and a half because I got to it from the seventh jhana. Okay, so l- lest lest listeners start 
uh, <laughs> jump to the conclusion that you're a crazy hippie uh, computer programmer, which you may be. I uh, am. Which you okay, but but you so you may be out of your mind. But but we do have this some of the science that you referenced earlier, and we do have thousands of years of people describing these same experiences in the same sequence. Right. Which kind of blows my mind. What does that say about our mind that this is possible, that these experience, these very specific experiences happen in, these, in this very specific order? Who designed this? Why is this happening, and how did we even find it in the first place? I think it was just like I found the first genre in the first place. People stumbled into it. And then over time, they systematized it, taking the ones with the most gross, the least subtle objects, and putting those ahead of those with the increasingly subtle objects. And over time, people discovered, oh, yeah, it's possible to stumble into these states. In fact, it's even possible to learn to intentionally go into these states, put them in the order. So they weren't invented, they were discovered. But, 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 I mean, that, that raises questions about whether there is some designer or inventor, uh, at least in my mind, about why would this? Why would we have the these sort of interconnected rooms that appear to have have some architect? Uh, why would our minds work in this way? That one we don't know. We have more data that hasn't been analyzed, you know, neuroscience data. And it would be great to get some analysis of this. But, of course, you know, this is not a high-priority thing for the National Institute of Health, and they're not handing out grants for jhanas. <laughs> but, yeah, it would be quite interesting to understand what's going on. My best guess is that they aren't the product of intentional evolution. In other words, evolution wasn't selecting for these states. They're a side effect of evolution. Okay, uh, the fact that the lower sinus drain hole goes up instead of down, uh, we didn't select for that. That's a leftover from the fact that we used to be animals that walked around with our faces down and the drain hole in the right place. All right, so there are parts of our body, physical parts of our body, that we have that didn't get selected for. They're just a leftover from something else happening. And I'm guessing that that's what's going on with these jhanic states. But I'm just guessing. This is total speculation. But again, they serve a useful purpose. Which they is serve different. a useful purpose. So as 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 I said from the beginning, this is a controversial topic, and not mm -hmm. just because of the debate over whether this is a useless diversion or a useful uh, uh, tool to, to help you uh, reach enlightenment. Mm -hmm. um, the other controversy. Well, there are a couple of other controversies. One is that there is a claim that's been around for thousands of years that once you reach, I believe, the fourth jhana, that you can actually develop superpowers. Right. Uh, you don't buy this. Um, uh, I, I did walk on water one time in Sweden. It was early December. <laughs> I had ice skates on. <laughs> but but they, there are people alive today who, I mean, I've had conversations with my teacher, Joseph Goldstein, about the fact that he, had, he believes he had a teacher who was able to, to get into these jhanic states right. and, and perform right. uh, miracles, basically. Right. Um, like like walking on in the air or multiplying your body or reading right. people's minds and, and yeah. stuff out of the X-Men, basically. Right. And... I'm just a bit skeptical of that. I haven't seen anybody walking on water except that one time in Sweden. <laughs> uh, now, I can pass through walls by using a trick called a door, and that's another one of the supernormal powers, not using a door, I guess. Um, but, yeah, I just want – I don't want it to be somebody who said that they saw somebody – who said that they saw somebody who said that. You know, my uncle's brother-in-law's cousin's first wife's – Aunt Sid. So you've spent a lot of time in the jhanas. You have not noticed any. You nope. haven't. You haven't developed what they call the divine ear, where you can read other people's minds or things like that. The one thing I've noticed is that my ESP, whatever that is, okay, ESP is a well-known phenomena. We don't know what happens. We don't know is there actually picking up something from somebody's mind or just picking up subtle cues or just not being very good at probability, all right? But there's a phenomenon. When I say ESP, people listening know that what I'm talking about. It gets enhanced when I do the jhanas. Now, I don't know that whether that means I pick up even more subtle cues or whether there is something actually going on, 
What do you mean by that your ESP gets enhanced? What, is it, where, what does that actually mean? All right, an example. I was on a retreat. We had no dessert at all on this retreat, ever. And one day I left lunch and was walking back to my room, and I knew we were going to have dessert that night. And I didn't know why. And I went that night, and there was chocolate. Now. Could be a wild guess. It could be a wild guess. But I've had other things happen like that, and it happens more frequently while I'm on retreat practicing jhanas than it does in ordinary life. But it doesn't happen in a way that's reliable. In other words, I don't always know when we're having dessert. Okay? But these sort of things happen, and I actually mentioned this to my teacher, Ayakema, and she laughed and said, yeah, we all noticed that. So whatever ESP is, whether it's an actual phenomena or just simply not being aware of picking up subtle cues or whatever, or just not knowing about probability, it gets enhanced with a well-concentrated mind, and multiple people have reported this. So I'll buy that one, although I won't make a claim as to whether there is such a thing as scientific ESP or whether it's just misreading what's going on. Here's the other controversy. You have been accused of teaching what's called jhana light, yes. L-I-T-E. Yes. Because there are those who believe that uh, you can't access, uh, somebody like Shmo like me could not access the jhanas in a 10-day retreat. I would actually have to go on retreat for months. Yes, exactly. This is because over time, the understanding of the states that constitutes the jhanas changed. You can actually see this in the literature. You can see it beginning to change in some of the discourses that were composed after the Buddha's death. Uh, you can start to see a bit of change starting to happen there. You can see that by the time of the Abhidhamma, which was composed about 200 years after the Buddha's death, there was more change, and the change was towards deeper concentration. You look at the commentaries from 800 years, 900 years after the Buddha, very, very deep states. Clearly, different states than what are described in the suttas of the Buddha. Theravadan Buddhism, however, looks more at the commentaries than the suttas of the Buddha. Okay, they wouldn't claim that, but by studying the suttas and the commentaries and what Theravadan Buddhism is saying... Theravadan Buddhism is mostly commentarial Buddhism. And so they're looking at the jhanas as described in the commentaries. Now, these are eight additional states, different from the ones that I described. So beyond the ninth jhana then. Right. So there's actually jhanas 9 through 16. Actually, I have on my website a list of 38 states that people have used the word jhana to describe. So there's actually 38 different jhanas. <laughs> you, this has been so interesting. I'm so grateful to you. You you had to really kind of alter your schedule a little bit to make it in here to do this. So yeah, I'm really happy to do it. I, I really appreciate it. Um, uh, the book is Right Concentration. The website is L-E-I-G-H-B dot com. Lee B dot com. Right. Uh, check it out. Go on a retreat with Lee. Read his book. Uh, go for it um, unless uh, you um, think he's making it up. Um, I'm inclined to believe he's not. Uh, such a pleasure to have you in. Thank you again. Appreciate Thank it. Thank you. One last word. Yes. Actually, it's two words. Go. Whenever you're practicing, keep in mind, relaxed diligence. That's what's necessary to do this practice most effectively. Relaxed diligence. I would say that that is what's needed to do anything effectively. You're smiling and nodding. Uh, Lee, thank you again. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. Thank you for having me on. Thanks, as always, to the producers of the show, Lauren Efron, Josh Cohan, Sarah Amos, and Dan Silver. You can hit me on Twitter at Dan B. Harris anytime you like. If you liked the episode today and you want to hear more like it, you can subscribe to the podcast, rate it, and leave a review. Thank you for that, and uh, we'll talk to you next week. If you like 10% Happier, and I hope you do, uh, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com slash survey. If you travel, you know when it comes to love. See you soon. Can't wait. The sky is no limit. 
You know with your Delta Amex card, being oceans apart means meeting in Aruba. And booking a war travel with your card means saving 15% on Delta flights. You know kissing under the bridge of size guarantees eternal love. Because you're the long-distance lovebirds. It's why you're a Delta SkyMiles Platinum American Express card member. If you travel, you know. Takeoff 15 discount not applicable to partner-operated flights or taxes and fees. Terms apply. Visit go.amex slash you know. Welcome to Pura, the most pristine, safe, climate-stable city on Earth. A haven amidst the wreckage. Here, you're safe from heat domes, superstorms, water bandits in the outer lands. There's no crime in Pura. No murder, no suicide. And best of all, there's no cost to join us. In Pura, we promise to keep you safe. They killed her! You took everything! In a world that doesn't feel so safe anymore, we're waiting for you. Here, in Pura. The Last City is a new scripted audio drama from Wondery. Enjoy The Last City on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge all episodes of The Last City right now, ad-free, on Wondery Plus. Get started with your free trial at wondery.com slash plus.